Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Colin Calloway, author of The Indian World of George Washington. Colin Calloway, author of The Indian World of George Washington. You say in the introduction, this is not another biography of Washington. So what is it? Good question. And I think what I've done in this book <coughs> is use the life story of George Washington as a vehicle to, if you like, get American Indians into America's story. Uh, Washington, of course, is the first president. He's perhaps even the most famous <coughs> individual in American history. And I felt that if I could show the role that Native Americans played in his life and in shaping the historical events that <coughs> influenced his life and in many ways influenced the, the birth of the nation, that would be a good way of getting Indians into American history, which might seem uh, a rather simple thing to do, but those of us who've been working in American Indian history for a long time have been trying to do just that, and sometimes it, it seems like it's an uphill struggle um, because lots of, <coughs> in lots of cases, the history of, Amer of the United States, to me, does not make a lot of sense without Indians in it. And yet, very often, histories of the United States ignore Native Americans uh, and at, at least do not acknowledge the role that they played, their omnipresence, and in some cases, their, their power. Um, so <clears throat> since we're in Philadelphia, a good place to start is perhaps in Philadelphia. If you were living in Philadelphia in the 1790s, when this is the nation's <clears throat> capital, it would be quite possible to be walking the streets and bump into a delegation of Native Americans in town. Uh, <clears throat> and usually, they were coming to town to meet George Washington. Uh, so George Washington has dinner with uh, a group of Indian people from the Wabash, Illinois country. I think it's February uh, 4th. It's a Monday. He's having dinner Monday afternoon with members of his cabinet and this Indian delegation. A week later, he does the same thing with a delegation uh, of Iroquois, uh, Haudenosaunee Indians. And in <coughs> I think it's the last week of November, 1796, we're told that the president had dinner with four separate delegations of Indians on four different days. What would they have talked about? Well, of course, one of the things <coughs> you would think they talk about is land, because land is fundamental to George Washington in his own search for wealth <coughs> and standing. It's fundamental to the growth and expansion of Virginia, but it's also fundamental to the growth of the nation. Washington understood that without <coughs> Western land, the nation that he'd helped create would be stifled. Um, 
there was no point winning independence if you're hemmed in west of the Appalachian Mountains. He knew that the nation needed to expand. That expansion had to take place over Indian land. And of course, as we know from <coughs> the history of this country, um, the growth of the nation, westward expansion, if you like, requires transforming Native American homelands into American real estate. That's, that's part of the big picture. But <coughs> on some of those occasions, Washington makes it quite clear to Henry Knox, who's the Secretary of War, that he should tell the interpreters and everybody else, don't talk about land. Because <coughs> the Indian people are often in there to talk about alliances, to talk about not joining the Northwest Indian Confederacy, which is resisting American expansion in the West. So I think those, those two aspects are, are fundamental to understanding what's going on here. <coughs> yeah, this is a, and Washington understands it. He understands that the new United States needs Indian land. There are gonna be endless negotiations in an effort to get Indian land. But he also recognized, and I think this is perhaps what we have forgotten <coughs> or not known because we sometimes read history backwards. He recognized that Indian nations still constituted a major power in the land. You have Britain in the north, still hostile to the United States, the Spaniards in the south and southwest, both of whom are cultivating alliances with Indian peoples and Indian nations to the West who in many ways make common cause with those European rivals to try and keep American expansion <coughs> in check. Did Washington see westward expansion of the United States as requiring the expulsion of the Indians? Absolutely, uh, because tribal homelands and I think Washington and, and uh, Americans ideas of, of property really couldn't coexist. Right? <clears throat> you couldn't, you could allow, native people could, co could, could continue to survive, but tribal societies and tribal uses of land and all of those kinds of things, um, <clears throat> there was no place for those kinds of societies in, in American society. Uh, and Washington not only thought that Indian people had to give way to American expansion. He actually believed, or at least he hoped <coughs> that, that it could be the case, that that could almost happen naturally. That as Americans moved westward, as their population grew, as their settlement exerted increasing pressure on, on Native American territory and culture, that would reduce a Native American game, that would render Native American territories, homelands if you like, less valuable to the <coughs> indigenous inhabitants, and they would almost naturally sell their land to American settlement settlers. The hope was, probably a little too optimistic, that this could be a fairly bloodless process. But it had to happen, and I think this is, um, this is a given in Washington's assumptions about his Indian policies, the role of the United States government in dealing with Indians, and the future of the United States. Um, Indian land must become American land. When the Indians made a treaty with the fledgling United States, what were they getting out of it? <clears throat> Lots of times when, when treaties are made, um, they're not always about land. 
Sometimes they're about alliances, sometimes they're about establishing trade relations, and there's a long history of treaty making in North America, <coughs> going back to the British and the French, even the Dutch. And treaties in this country are fascinating because what happens in those early treaties is you get Europeans arriving with their own traditions and protocols and understandings of how you make a treaty, and then they meet Native Americans who have their own protocols and traditions and rituals about how you make alliances, how you, if you like, conduct foreign policies. <coughs> and those two things kind of come together and create this, this almost hybrid diplomacy, which we call Indian treaty making, in which you have Europeans depending upon written documents and the spoken word, native people uh, depending upon wampum belts as a record of what's said, and the spoken word. And treaties by their nature and definition, of course, are agreements between sovereign powers, nation-to-nation -nation agreements. And Washington <coughs> recognized that and said to the United States Senate that that requirement in the Constitution, which said that a treaty made with a foreign power must be ratified by a two-third vote of the Senate, that applies to Indian treaties as well. <coughs> now, sometimes, of course, um, when Indian people are making treaties, you ask that question, why would you do this? And lots of times it's for um, guarantees or improvement in trade relations. Lots of times it's for alliances in which <coughs> the giving of land could be seen almost as a, a reciprocal gesture. You know, we have what you need and we will give you land. You have what we, we need and you will give that to us. Obviously, as the power dynamics shift, then the relationships shift, and increasingly it becomes a, uh, a situation in which Americans are demanding land for Indian people. How did Indians perceive the idea of ownership of land? Well, I think at first it's an alien concept, not that Indians did not have a sense of owning land. Um, they did, but it's a different sense from Euro-American idea of property, that land is something that can be <coughs> measured, divided up, commodified, bought and sold, that kind of thing. Certainly Indian bands, in, even Indian families, had a sense of this is our land. But it's, <coughs> it's much less fixed, it's much more flexible. And of course the idea is that, I think in tribal societies, that homeland is something that doesn't change. Right? The people come and go, but the land remains. From in dealing with Europeans, of course, they learn that they have a different idea about what, what land is and how it can be transferred. And at first that leads uh, to some, shall we say, misunderstandings. Uh, sometimes those misunderstandings might have been somewhat creative and, 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 and deliberate. But <clears throat> where Indian people thought that what they were selling or transferring was not so much complete ownership of the land, but the right to use the land, to share the land. So you get situations where uh, Indian people would come back to places expending, expecting that they could hunt there, fish there, or plant corn there as usual, and they now find that it's cordoned off with fences behind which there's a farmer holding a gun because <coughs> The, the thinking of the Europeans is that that land has been transferred to us, if you like, lock, stock, and barrel. The Indians, what they thought they were doing was sharing the land. And, of course, 
that causes misunderstandings which lead to bloodshed. Eventually, of course, Indian people begin to understand what's meant and what's at stake here, what, that when they send, sell the land, that land will be gone forever. And what they're getting in return for it is money, and that will often be gone very quickly. You mentioned something uh, earlier about uh, the idea of George Washington as a land speculator, yeah. and that's kind of a thread that runs through your book. If, if, for people who don't know that, for, how did land speculating work, and how did George Washington get into it? Yeah. When I, before I started doing this book, I, I read a lot of biographies of George Washington and to see what they said essentially about Indians, and usually it was not very much. <clears throat> but they did talk an awful lot about land and Western land. And it struck me that if you went through those books and every time it said Western land, you crossed out Western and put Indian, or land you inserted Indian, then a huge part of the book was actually about Indian country because... <clears throat> and this was not, George Washington, I think, became, um, he became a renowned speculator in a time and place that produced speculators. Right? He was good at the game. Um, but everybody was doing this because this was the source of wealth. And particularly at a time when, prior to the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War, there was a sense that out west, was this huge bounty of land just waiting to be occupied by land-hungry Anglo-American settlers. And what stood in the way was the Indians and their French backers. People who could invest in land, who could speculate in the land, who could lay, get title to that land, expected that they would make a killing. Once the French were defeated and that Indian barrier was removed, and, and Washington um, spent much of his early life building a fortune in Western land. Um, by the time he dies, he has something like 45,000 acres of land, and his treaty and his will goes on for page after page after page about his land. Uh, <clears throat> so he, he's, he's um, somebody who's really good at this, and he has a reputation in, even in his own lifetime uh, as doing this. But it, it throws into stark relief what's at stake when Britain and France go to war and France is defeated and then France is out of the picture. The idea then is that that barrier that has kept Anglo-American settlement east of the Appalachians is removed. Anglo-American settlers can now stream across the mountain and people like George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, lots of other household names who, as gentlemen of fortune at the time were doing, had been speculating in the land, expected to make a killing. The problem then was that the British government put the damper on it because at the end of the French and Indian War, what the British had done was essentially, <coughs> during the war, promise Indians that when the war was over, if Britain was in control, their lands would be safe. The British then proceeded to occupy the forts that the French had occupied. So you get red-coated troops marching into these forts. And the British also thought that since they were bankrupt at the end of this long war, it would be a good idea to retrench, to cut back on costs by not giving gifts to Indians, not supplying Indians as, as liberally as they'd done uh, previously. 
<clears throat> that made financial sense to people in Whitehall. It was read almost as an act of war, certainly an act of hostility by Indian people for whom the giving and receiving of gifts was <clears throat> a lubricant of diplomacy. It's what made friends friends. This is what friends and allies did. Strangers and potential enemies withheld gifts. So there's, a, there's literally an explosion called, which we know as Pontiac's War, <clears throat> which I prefer to call the, the first war of independence because in 1763, 12 years before the American colonists do it, Indians in the Ohio Valley and Great Lakes go to war against the British Empire to throw off that imperial yoke, as they say, you're, you're trying to make us slaves. And the British respond to that by doing two things. One is, they say, okay, we've got to keep <coughs> an army in North America. Somebody's going to have to pay for that. We can't pay for it. Guess what? Let's tax the American colonists because we're doing that to protect that. Then, right? um, we all know where that went, and our history books tell that story. But the other thing that they, our books don't uh, address <coughs> so well, I think, is that that same year, in 1763, the British put a check on expansion. They run a boundary down the Appalachian Mountains and say, east of that is British settlement, west of that is Indian settlement, Indian country. And you can only get land from Indians in formal and open treaties negotiated by the representatives of the Crown and the authorized representatives of the, of, of, of the tribes. In other words, <coughs> the central government has control and the central government will be in charge of buying and selling lands, not George Washington. Was that one of the things that pushed George Washington toward, toward being a rebel? I think the, absolutely. That it cut into his action on yeah, land speculation? I think ab absolutely. Uh, he, has a, he has a fit. And he's not the only one because as a struggling Virginia planter, one of the things that he and many of his fellows had their eyes on was that their fortunes were going to change. Right? And you would have this land resource in the West that would be <coughs> either and, either or, an area for an expansion of your own plantations, or you can sell and rent it to other people, supplement your revenues, etc., etc. Now that's <coughs> choked off, and it seems to these guys as if that French and Indian barrier that has kept them in check for so long has now been replaced by a British and Indian barrier. And I think from then, it's it's a straight set of steps towards the revolution. Washington, who had been fighting for the British Empire during the, the Seven Years' War, really now thinks this is not, this is not a looking good. Right? We're got, we, and I in particular, would be better off without the empire. Because, and I think that one of the freedoms that people like George Washington and other founding fathers, people of that generation are fighting for, is the freedom to get their hands on Indian land. And that's some, one of the freedoms that the Crown has withheld from them. And they say as much in the, in the Declaration of Independence. When George Washington was a young teenager learning surveying, did, did he grow up with Indians around him in Virginia? Not, not so much, because the, um, the Indian population of Virginia had been decimated, of course, in the previous century. 
Um, I mean, we're all familiar with the story of uh, Pocahontas and Powhatan and et cetera, et cetera, where <clears throat> at the beginning of the 17th century, a, you know, a, a handful of English settlers arrived in what is an Indian world. Right? And within that century, those Indian populations plummet through all the causes that we're, we're familiar with, um, disease, slavery, war, et cetera, et cetera. So by the time Washington is born, Indians still exist in Virginia, but these are not the people that he's going to spend his life dealing with. Um, those are the it's the Indian nations, if you like, beyond the Blue Ridge Mountains, who are still powers in the land and who are the people who are going to check and influence and shape his life. These are the people that he deals with. But his first encounter, at least in his writings, with a with a a party of Indians is when he's out on, a, on his first surveying expedition as a teenager and, and they meet a party of Indians. And he briefly talks about them and really has, displays not, not too much interest in them. And that's going to change because he does become deeply interested in Indians, not in Indians, not, I suspect, because of any particular sympathy or empathy for their culture or trying to understand their way of life, but because he had to be. You needed to know Indians, you needed to deal with Indians. And I think one of the things that prompted me to, to write this book and, and, and to come up with this title is that <clears throat> because we, we know how things play out, we tend to think that Indians were always just being swept aside. When Washington's born in 1732, I mean, and I have a map in the book that gives an impression of that, European colonies are very much on the peripheries of the continent. The vast majority of the continent is Indian country, and it's inhabited not just by a monolithic um, group called Native Americans, but by dozens, even hundreds of different Indian nations who have their own foreign policies for dealing with each, each other, but also for dealing with different European powers and often playing them off one against the other. So I think if you, if you live in the 18th century, if you're British, Spanish, French, or George Washington, you understand that if you have any ambitions to do with the interior of the continent, you will have to do with it, deal with Indians and you will have to know, get to know something about Indian people, who they are, and what their agendas are, and how you can uh, negotiate with them. Did his view of Indians change, evolve over his lifetime? You're right here, this is when he was younger. Sometimes he spent days at a time in Indian villages when he was doing his surveying. Mm -hmm. Rarely did he ever show any appreciation that the societies there functioned according to their own rules, rhythms, and beliefs, and values, that, like mm -hmm. you mentioned. So yeah. did, did he ever evolve in his views on that, or did he always sort of think that they were kind of this inferior culture? Well, I think, that, I think he always thinks they're in this inferior culture, as, as, as I think everybody else in the United States and, and in <coughs> British North America does. It's a, di it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a product of that time and thinking of, of the Enlightenment where these people are inferior and they're primitive and they're backward, and I think the <coughs> key word there is, is backward because they have not had the environment and the opportunities that we have had. And so they can be improved, they can be 
raised up through education, civilization, Christianity, etc. And throughout his life, I think he continues to believe that's the case. Um, I don't really see any, any great sea change in terms of trying to understand Native American cultures on their own terms, for instance. Um, I think he needs to get to know the rudiments of how Native American peoples conduct business, uh, smoking calumet pipes, exchanging wampum belts, and those kinds of things. But I don't really detect any keen interests in understanding how these societies work, what makes them tick, etc. I do see um, sympathy and empathy for Native people. Uh, and one of the things that I think becomes clear in the book and, and, and certainly became clear to me <coughs> reading Washington is that he often attributes much of the violence and bloodshed and, and, and brutality of the frontier not so much to Indian people as to white people who are on the frontier. Uh, and he sees them as the kind of brutal edge of, uh, of, of American expansion and sees the goal of the government as to, in a sense, do what the British had tried to do and fail, and that is regulate and control the frontier, try and stop this bloodshed. And to do that, you need to not only deal with the Indians, but you also need to try and control, with, control your own people who are out there. And that's something that the American government succeeds in doing no better, really, than the British government had succeeded in doing. Now, you write about different um, Indian alliances that, that George Washington had, guides or, or people who he mm -hmm. allied himself with. Why would an Indian have allied himself with George Washington? And, I, I, and that's a good question, right? Because knowing what we know, why would you do that, right? This is, <clears throat> this is the wolf in sheep's clothing, perhaps, right? But I think if we, if we look at Indians and think of Indians not as members of a, of a race, right, but as members of different nations, then we can use that term foreign policies, right, which is not a term that we use a lot when we're talking about Native Americans. Often the tendency to think, is, how we think, is that Native Americans respond to white people in one way. Right? They're hostile to white people, and for good reason, because white people are going to take their land, etc. <clears throat> but Indian people don't have this sort of sea slug response to just, let's, let's just kill white people. Indians go to war for specific purposes at, at specific times. And they do so not as Indians, but as members of different nations. So in the French and Indian War, in that struggle for the Ohio Valley that uh, I spent quite a bit of time in the book talking about, we use the term French and Indian War, and that suggests that Indians are allies or even pawns of the French. But in fact, <coughs> Indian people, some Indian people fought with the British, and those Indian people who fought with the French were doing so not as pawns of the French, but they were fighting their own parallel wars. And I think if we then say, okay, what, what makes Indian nations tick in terms of how they deal with Europeans? I think the two things are retaining control of your homeland and preserving your sovereignty and independence. And if we, if we recognize that in them, 
then I think a lot of their actions, which might not make sense, and certainly didn't make sense to the Americans, the French, or the British, actually do make sense, because they're not inconsistent, they are consistent. And <clears throat> if that is your consistent goal, then sometimes making uh, an alliance with one power might be the best way to do it. So Tanarison in the Ohio Valley, for instance, who figures prominently in dealings with, with George Washington, sees in George Washington and Virginia and the British an important counterbalance to what to the growing power of the French in the Ohio Valley, which he sees as a threat not only to Indian people uh, in that area, but to his own personal standing and status. Did, did some Indian nations see allying themselves with the British or the French as a way to get uh, get an advantage in conflicts with other, other Indian nations? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So if you think of the, the, the model that I, I like to use, <coughs> especially in class, is to, instead of thinking of <coughs> the American frontier, if you like, as a, as a line with white people on one side and Indians on the other, and that line's moving steadily west, I like to draw <coughs> the spokes of a wheel leading, leading to a hub, right? And that hub can be any Indian tribe or nation you choose. And those spokes will lead to multiple other Indian nations and to European powers and to different English or American colonists. Right? And so situated at the center of, that, of those spokes, you're using all of those relationships, which are often shifting, to shape and determine relationships with people on the end of another hub, right? So you can, you seek European allies because European allies are a source of guns, maybe a source of military power, and that will increase your power, your standing, not only in dealing with other European rivals, but also with other Indian nations, right? So lots of Indian nations are in this sort of cauldron of competition where they're suspicious, of course, of Europeans, but they also recognize that Europeans are a source of trade, a source of firearms, and possibly also an important emerging player in these struggles. Right? So they are seeking to make alliances as often, and I would often say more often, than they are seeking to go to war with Europeans. And it creates this complicated. It's almost like a kaleidoscope with all of these moving parts. Right? And that's where I think where uh, I <clears throat> paint this picture of George Washington kind of being out of his depth as a young man in the Ohio country. And I don't really mean that to be um, critical uh, <clears throat> or, or um, disrespectful of George Washington. I think anybody would have been. There are a few kind of hardened <clears throat> traders and Indian agents out there who could figure out what was going on. But you could not take, let's face it, a kid from Virginia, send him out into Ohio country and say, okay, figure it all out because it's a complicated world. Is it possible to figure it out now? I mean, what, what kind of written records exist to, <coughs> to paint what it meant to have an Indian nation versus Indian yeah, tribes yeah. and the interactions? I think we're doing a lot better. I, I, I'm not sure that I've completely figured it out, and I've been doing this all my life. I feel like I'm scratching the surface. But I think in the last generation or so, where historians have uh, tried to look at 
Native American history and try to understand it um, by, <clears throat> by not, if you like, taking the view from Washington, by which I mean the capital, right? where you <clears throat> it used to be the case, I think, that historians who would write Indian history would do so, writing United States Indian policy or a history of Indian wars, etc. For a long time now, we've been trying to understand Native American history more in the terms of the people whose history it, it was. And that means, of course, doing much more work and being much more responsive to Native American sources, to consulting with Native American um, peoples who, who, and communities that have their own histories. But I think a lot of those stories can also be gleaned from the records. It's often said that you couldn't write Native American history because Native Americans did not leave written records. Well, that's a myth put out by lazy historians because, uh, first of all, Native Americans very often did. Many of them learned to read and write uh, and left, left records. But one of the things that Europeans did was to create enormous troves of records and documents in their dealings with Indian people, and it's where, especially in treaties, they record what Indian people are saying. <clears throat> and, of course, we should be rightly skeptical and say, yeah, but this is filtered, right? But when you've read enough of those records, there's enough of those records that contain things that are certainly not complimentary about Europeans to know that some of those um, opinions and perspectives come through. And I think positioning ourselves in Indian country, even if we're not, in my case, Native American, if you simply position yourself in the Ohio country and try and figure out these, what's going on and how things looked to somebody who was living there at that time, you can get a much better understanding than if you simply take the view from the east moving west. But it is, uh, it's, um, it's not, it, it's, it's an impure science. It's, you're, 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 it's, it's almost like through a glass darkly, you're trying to figure it out. And I think one of my most interesting documents that I've been doing this book was Washington's own journal of his first expedition as an emissary into the Ohio country sent by Governor uh, Dinwiddie of Virginia, which is, which is quite sparse. Um, he apparently writes this overnight almost when he gets back, presumably, from notes that he's taken. But <clears throat> you could miss an awful lot, and I missed an awful lot when I first read that, and probably when I second and third read that too. But when you look at it <clears throat> very closely, almost in minute detail, where they're talking about what's going on with wampum belts, it becomes clear that there's an awful lot going on with wampum belts that <clears throat> you need to sort of unpack from those very uh, brief records. Why, why aren't the wampum belts here? Why are they waiting for wampum belts? What's going on? And clearly what's going on is, is something of a, of a shell game in which the different Indian players are holding up negotiations, holding up Washington's progress um, as they're trying to figure out what's all going on here because they recognize here are the English coming to talk with the French and Tenarison, who's Washington's ally, seems to be have, have one view of thing, but then you have the Delawares and the Shawnees and the other people saying, well, we'll just watch how this unfolds. Right? We're not going to commit yet. Um, 
And that's a, it's, a, it's a sort of fascinating exercise. And I always feel like, yeah, I'm getting a lot of stuff here that, um, that I know is important. But I'm also aware of the fact that, it, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I'm not getting yet. So the, the journal you're talking about is what Washington wrote after his first trip mm -hmm. out into what's now Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how does it read? I mean, does, does, is it tough to plow through? It's not tough to plow through because it's quite short. Mm. Um, it's not. And, but I think it's deceptively simple, I would say. Um, and it's almost to me as if it's a record of a journey through Indian country with a whole bunch of teasers, right? Where they'll make a brief reference, mention something, and but if you read it closely, you think, but wait a minute, there must be something else going on here, or this doesn't all quite add up. Um, and that's not to suggest that George Washington's anyway being being decept deceptive, but you're getting uh, almost this. Um, it's almost like a flyover of this complicated world. And there are certain hints where you think, okay, I've got to look at that. And fortunately, before I, <coughs> I, I researched and wrote this book, I'd, I'd written a book on Indian treaties. So I, I kind of got into wampum belts and what all that was. And I'm fascinated by, by this, this whole phenomenon. It's like trying to learn another language. So when I saw those references to wampum belts, I realized that this is this is almost a code. There's something else going on here because wampum belts really matter. It's not just we need this as a as a kind of passport to go to Indian country. There's there's a lot more behind that. Do any of those original wampum belts still exist? Yes, they do, uh, and a lot of them. Um, for instance, the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois wampum belts they exist at Onondaga, and. That's important because Onondaga was the central council fire of the Confederacy or League of the Six Nations, the Mohawks, Oneidas, Onondaga, Cayugas, Senecas, and Tuscaroras. And in the 1980s, uh, there was a controversial um, debate or issue where <coughs> the Haudenosaunee and Onondaga asked for the return of wampum belts from the State Museum in New York and said, you have wampum belts that belong to us. And their position was that these are our, um, almost like our foreign policy records. Right? And for them to be in Albany rather than Onondaga might be a little bit like the records of the State Department being in Baghdad. Right? They should be here. And those, those belts were returned. So now what you have <coughs> at um, the Albany Museum is replicas of those wampum belts, and the originals are, are back. Uh, and there are wampum belts, all, you know, in lots of places. There are wampum belts in Europe, uh, because lots of wampum belts that were given to Europeans went back to Europe, as in, uh, as was the intention at the time. Right? You take this belt as a record of our agreement. You take it home with you, and when we meet again, right, we will both know what we agreed to or what our ancestors agreed to, because it's encoded in these wampum belts. So they're important messages. And Haudenosaunee people, for instance, um, there's a commemoration of the Treaty of, of Canandaigua uh, in fall of 1794, uh, which is negotiated under Washington's administration, where <coughs> uh, it's an important treaty for Iroquois people. And in November of each year, they, they hold a commemoration of that 
where they <coughs> parade two wampum belts. One is the wampum belt that uh, was uh, commissioned by Washington for that treaty, and it shows the, 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 the states, the original states, linking arms with the <coughs> Six Nations Confederacy. And the other is what the Haudenosaunee called the two-row wampum belt. Uh, which I actually have a replica of, which was given to me, which is a beautiful, uh, a beautiful thing in its simplicity. It's two rows of purple beads against three, a background of three rows of three white beads. And what it represents um, is an alliance. Harkening back to the first treaty between the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois people, and the Dutch, and the <coughs> two-row wampum, as, as it's called, symbolizes an alliance between equals. Right? We will, if you like, two, bono, two boats, two canoes traveling the river, parallel, equal, but always separate. You won't mess with us, we won't mess with you. And Haudenosaunee, they are quite people today, present those or um, bring out those wampum belts reflecting their relationship with the federal government. Here was this treaty that we made with George Washington, which recognized us as sovereign nation. And here is to her wampum belt that also symbolizes that. Um, so a lot of the things that happened in Washington's administration uh, still have um, significance today in Indian country. Did Washington ever learn to speak any Indian languages? Not that I know of. Don't, I mean, I. I <coughs> I think there must have been um, aspects of, of you know, Seneca that, that he must have picked up with on because he um, he's hanging out with Seneca people so often, not only in Iroquois country, but they, they come to Philadelphia to meet him. Um, so I think there must have been, he must have been familiar with some, but I don't think he ever learned language and I don't think he ever saw a need to learn language, right? Now, that's not to say that he was um, an advocate of that policy that becomes United States policy later in the 19th century, where you take Indian children and get them to lose their language, if necessarily by beating their language out of them. That's a later development. Uh, but I don't think Washington saw the need to um, speak Indian languages. However, you could argue that if you are in a situation where you're exchanging wampum belts, you are, in a sense, speaking that language. You're, you're speaking a different language. You, you spend quite a bit of time in your book talking about the four trips Washington, young Washington, took when he was in his 20s out mm -hmm. to what's now Western Pennsylvania. And it, it, did I read it right that on his second trip out there, the, the uh, Fort Necessity trip, that part of his mission was to establish, uh, to fortify the Forks of the Ohio? Yeah, the folks of the Ohio are, of course, now Pittsburgh. Now Pittsburgh, of course, are <coughs> crucial to this whole story, because they are seen by the French and by the English as, if you like, the key to the continent. Right? It's the gateway to the West, and it's almost as if there's a race to the forks. And it's not just the French and the English; it's also Virginia and Pennsylvania, right? because uh, Virginia and Pennsylvania have their eyes on this same area and you know at one point almost come to blows over this right? but much of the contest much of the escalating 
tensions that produce the Seven Years' War, which Fred Anderson called it the war that made America, right, focus on the forks of the Ohio. And Washington goes out there, first of all, his first trip under um, Dinwiddie's embassies, basically to deliver a message to the French to ask them if they wouldn't mind politely withdrawing. And of course, the French politely refused, so that's that. The second trip, he sent out, he's now an officer in the Virginia militia, and he's out there to, <coughs> to fortify um, the forts, and it's too late, the French have got there, they've already um, expelled a, a puny Virginian fort. But this is where the, the, the conflict arises, and Washington's often credited with being the, the, the kind of precocious young man who fires the shot that sparks the French and Indian War. I actually think that it's a war caused more by Tanarison, um, more by the Indians, because of Tanarison's agenda. Tanarison convinces Washington that there's a French force coming with hostile intentions. It now seems that that French force is coming with the same intentions that Washington had had previously, is coming with a summons to the English to withdraw. But that produces this, this notorious, I guess, skirmish at, at Jumonville-Glen, where um, the French are defeated, uh, the French officer is killed, and Washington, in his account of that battle, is very terse. It's lacking in details. But if you go deeper and look at the French sources, look at records of um, <coughs> English soldiers and even deserters, you get a very different picture. Uh, and this seems to be a defeat that's inflicted, and the brutality of the defeat is inflicted by, by Indians. Washington is subsequent to that compelled surrender to the French at Fort Necessity, and that's an embarrassment because in the terms of that surrender, he acknowledges um, blame, if you like, guilt for the killing of Jumonville, the, the, the French officer. Um, but that whole conflict swirls around the forks of the Ohio. After the debacle at Fort Necessity, the British then di di dispatched to North America the biggest, biggest army they've ever sent under General Edward, Edward Braddock. Washington joins that expedition, and it's a disaster. It gets within grasping distance of the fort, and it's not only defeated, it's, it's, it's routed by <coughs> a force of some French, but mainly Indians. It really shows the limits of empire in Indian country, this huge army. I want to ask you, the, the Fort Necessity that Washington set mm -hmm. up was at a place called Great Meadows. Yeah. And is, did I read it correctly that later in Washington's land speculation days, he bought that land? Yeah. Yes. So it's like seem, he got, I don't see any emotional connection to it. You know, he I didn't mean, feel yeah. like he was making up mm -hmm. for the loss. At least he doesn't tell me that in, in his writings. Maybe he was. But, uh, yeah, that, that's an interesting aspect mm -hmm. to it. Um, but one of the reasons why Braddock, General Andrew Braddock fails to take the fort is because he fails to win Indian allies and alienates those Indian allies that he has for the most part. And that's huge because forts in the West, when you look at a map, when the English looked at a map of the West and they saw these French forts dotted through the West, they saw them as formidable military outposts. Well, for the most part, one thing they were not was formidable. 
most of those French posts were there at the sufferance and even at the request of Indian people. Why would you want a fort on your land? Because forts bring traders and you get trade goods, etc. So forts in the West at this time depend usually not on the strength of their palisades or their cannons or garrisons, but on the Indian people living outside and around. If those people are with you, your fort is secure. If those people are against you, you're in trouble. So when Braddock is defeated, because the Indians are with the French, the British try again and dispatch General John Forbes to capture the Fort Duquesne. Again, Washington's part of that expedition. Forbes succeeds. Washington has no part in that success. In that expedition, Washington spends it complaining. The general doesn't know what he's doing. He's going too slow. He's going, the, he's going by the wrong path. You exactly. describe him as a bit of a hothead. Yeah, and I think that's how Forbes and, mm -hmm. and a lot of his uh, superior officers regarded him. But what's happening during that slow process is that Indian diplomacy is unfolding. And Forbes has set in motion what becomes the Treaty of Easton, whereby 500 Indian people show up at the Treaty of Easton representing a dozen, 13 tribes, where what the British do is say to them, when we take the fort, we will protect and honor your lands, right? which Braddock had refused to do. Once the Indians get that uh, assurance, going back to your idea of why would you make a treaty, once they get that assurance, if you're Delaware, Shawnee, wind up people living in the Ohio Valley, for you, the war's over. That's what you've been fighting for. You haven't been fighting because you love King Louis. You've been fighting with the French to try as the best option for securing your homeland. Now you seem to have secured that. With that agreement, the Delawares and the Shawnees basically sit back and give the green light to the British, say, well, go ahead. And so when Forbes takes Fort Duquesne, he doesn't even have to assault it. Before he gets there, the French blow up the fort and evacuate. So in my reading of, the, of this war, Indians cause it. Indians cause the defeat of Braddock. Indians cause the, or make possible, <coughs> the seizure of the fort. And if we try and explain all of those developments without Indians as actors in the, in the play, I think we're getting a very distorted and one-dimensional picture of what's going on. Well, how, how big a role did Indians then play in the American Revolution when that came along? And how did different tribes and nations decide who to side with? Yeah, and that's the big question when the revolution breaks out because for a lot of Indian people, they look at this and say, what, what's going on? Right? Our British brothers <coughs> are now killing each other. So they regard it almost as a domestic squabble. Let's not get in the middle of this one. And they, <clears throat> the initial response of most Indian people is to try and stay out of it, stay and remain neutral. That's a very precarious position for Indian people to take because the prevailing view of Indians is that Indians are warriors. So they will, they will obviously go to war. So if you don't have them fighting for you, you can bet your life they'll be fighting against you. We'd better take care of them before they turn on them. And so many Indian <coughs> leaders find neutrality is almost impossible to maintain. And I always think of the revolution as, of course, it's a war of independence, but it's also, as I indicated earlier, it's a war about Indian land and who's going to get it. It's, 
is the British government in London going to control this or are American colonists going to have access to Indian land which is going to be the source of their future wealth. For Indian people, of course, the revolution is a war about their land, but it's also therefore a war about their independence. And so when they're making that decision about who, whom to side with, it's the same thing. What is our best option for securing our land and protecting our own sovereignty and independence? It used to be that the French looked like the best bet. Now it looks like the British are the best bet because the British at least have some record of trying to protect our land. So they picked the losing side in they both They picked the wars. losing side in both cases, right? But at the time, that looked like the the best opportunity to protect those interests. And I think that's how I, when I look at what Indian peoples are doing, is, is say, what, what seems to be in their best interest? And it works, I think. You say in here that although the Iroquois harassing the frontiers were predominantly Mohawks and Senecas, Washington's first strike targeted the Onondagas. Mm -hmm. This is in the Revolutionary War. Most Onondagas were still neutral. Many had close ties with Washington's Oneida allies, and some were actually allied to the United States by early 1779. Yeah. So if they're the allies, why is he attacking the Oneidas? Yeah. And the Iroquois story is um, it's complicated and it also is illustrative of what's going on in Indian country. Because with the outbreak of the American Revolution, the Iroquois League actually splits. Usually these constituent tribes had um, determined common policies, common foreign policies at least. In this case, they realize that they have to agree to disagree because most of the Oneidas opt to side with the Americans. Most of the other nations eventually side with the British. But it's not a it's not a snap decision. And Onondaga is trying to do what it had done through relations with <clears throat> between the French and the English, and that is trying to adopt a neutral pose. Washington basically says if we hit Onondaga, if you like the nerve center, the capital, that sends a message, right? That shows them that we're not to be messed with, that, that we're gonna be strong. Um, and I think that's why why that happens, because the bulk of Washington's initiatives and efforts in the revolution are directed a little further west into Seneca country, where he dispatches John Sullivan's expedition, which is um, literally a scorched earth policy. Washington sends them out and says, destroy everything. Destroy every town, every cornfield, every orchard. We want to drive the Iroquois out of their country drive them to British at Fort Niagara and essentially create a refugee crisis for the British, which is what happens. Now, that seems brutal, but it's, it was actually standard colonial policy in fighting Indians. Colonial armies, Edward Braddock, right? Colonial armies didn't always do very well meeting Indians in pitch battle. The best way to defeat Indians, and the French had done this, and the British did this against the Cherokees in 1760-61, and Washington does it again, is to march armies into Indian country not to look for Indian warriors to fight, but to look to, for Indian villages to burn. You burn the villages, you destroy the cornfields, particularly if you do it uh, late summer or early fall so there's no time to plant another crop. And that leaves the women and children hungry and starving in the winter time. Right? That's the most effective way to defeat Indians. And in the 19th century on the plains, it's the same policy, but on the plains, the staple of life is the buffalo. 
So the United States destroys the buffalo herds and attacks Indian villages in the wintertime. That's the way to do it. So Washington's not creating that policy. Uh, he's, he's simply out of that policy. But it's a devastating assault on <coughs> Iroquois country. And usually it's seen as retaliation for Iroquois raids on the Pennsylvania frontier, the New York frontier, and it is that. But I think in, in all of these campaigns in the West, there's something else going on, and that is it's consistent with Washington's view that this nation that he's trying to create is going to need Western lands. And again, we're so familiar with the standard maps of the United States, which show the United States in 1783, where the British recognizes American independence, and cedes to the original 13 states all land south of the Great Lakes, north of Florida, and east of Mississippi, as if <clears throat> that was always going to be the prize. Washington knew that that was not necessarily the case. The British had tried to curtail expansion at the Appalachians. What if they insisted that they would hold land west of the Appalachians? The Quebec Act of 1774, the British had extended the borders of the province of Quebec down to the Ohio River. There had been a move among European powers to say, okay, let's if we can broker a peace, we could broker this peace on the <clears throat> on the basis of Britain recognizing American independence and everybody just holding the land that they had. For Washington and for Americans, that was no good. You have independence, but you don't have the wealth and the resources that you'll need in the West to build a nation. So you've got to get out there and be able to lay claim to those lands so that when the peace negotiations happen, you've got a realistic lever to say, this is American territory. You mentioned earlier what you say in class. Where do you teach? I teach at Dartmouth College, which is a fascinating place. And I've taught there now for more than 20 years because Dartmouth was a school ostensibly and originally established for the education of <coughs> the native youth of America. It didn't do too well in that regard up until the 20th century when 1970 it recommitted itself to that vision and since then it has graduated close to a thousand <coughs> Native American students with, from every tribe to Abenaki to Zuni and it means that I have, I, I have a joint appointment in history and Native American studies. Every class I teach I have Native American students in it and it, for me it's, not, it's kind of the best job in the world. Well, I wish we could keep talking because there's a lot more to talk about. But Absolutely. if you want to know more, you'll have to read the book, The Indian World of George Washington. We've been speaking with its author, Colin Calloway. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.